This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Greetings and welcome to Animal Instinct here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Celia Kutcher, and I'm also known as the Food Healer. And today we have a really intense interview here. I'm really excited about this. I've got James J. Brousseau, who's the author of Dignity, Pleasures, Vulgarity, Philosophy, and Animal Rights. So we're going to be talking philosophy, so bear with me, guys. It's been a long time since I've had this topic, but I'm going to try to like make you guys proud of me. So James, thank you so much for coming into the studio. I'm happy to be here. We'll do the best we can with the well, you're Greeks fine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you're good. I'm the one that's going to be like, but your book is fascinating. I read it over the weekend. Um, it was really, really, I'm amazed by it, actually, and I think the timing of it is really great because animal rights right now is a really, really hot topic, and people are starting to really understand what that means. And I think that your book really brought in a lot of points regarding what that means, what the definition of animal rights is. And so I, was, I loved it. So thank you for sharing it with me, for starters. Um, Let's start with what led you to write this book. Right. Uh, you know, I was writing a, a chapter on animal rights for a, a, a textbook I was writing. And, and one thing that writing a textbook forces you to do uh, is really get back to the basics. Mm. Uh, you, you start to see things from the ground up and you try to imagine as you're writing, okay, now I'm writing not for other professionals or others mm-hmm. who have been severely and Severely disciplined in these things, but no, people are, people are coming into it fresh, yeah. and are asking new and fresh questions, uh, and so it changes your mindset. And so, um, as I was going through this this textbook work, which was kind of heavy and burdensome, and it was toil, right? <laughs> uh, I began to think that you know one thing that we we never really or we rarely do in philosophy is we rarely explain in in human terms uh, the foundation. Uh, or the, the sensations and the way we can live, mm-hmm. uh, the, the ethical foundations, yeah. or, 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 or we can experience the ethics, ethical theories in our bodies. We don't explain how we feel and live ethics. Instead, at least philosophers, we tend to just throw words around, theoretical words like mm-hmm. dignity, utilitarianism, Kant, that kind of thing, right. uh, names concepts and so on. Um, and we just assume that everybody knows. Uh, but what, what I began to, th- to, to, un- to think about as I was writing about the animals as well, okay, how, how, what can it mean to, for an animal to experience dignity? Uh, and what can it mean for, uh, for an animal to experience pleasure and pain? Mm-hmm. And of course, we, we can't know those things directly. Yeah. Uh, but that, that's what led me to begin to think, well, you know, I haven't really even explained, and most people haven't explained, well, 
what is the human experience of dignity? What is the human experience of pleasure and pain? And That's what are the different point. ways of thinking about it? And so what, what this book is about, um, and kind of spun out of the textbook, is, it's, is an attempt to think in, in very human terms about the, the theories that drive animal rights. And there, there are two basic theories. One is about dignity, and that traces back to the philosopher Kant. The other is pleasure and pain, and that traces back to a school called utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first two parts of the title. Uh, but what's going on there is I'm trying to swim through both human experiences uh, and the philosophical theory as it's applied to animals to, to try to get a sense of, of what the ethics is about underneath um, the animal rights movement. Uh, so that's a long answer, right? To, no, it's a great answer. To, to what got me going, but that was sort of the process I followed. And then I, I'd just like to come back just very quickly yeah, to, totally. one, to one other thought. Uh, you made the very good point that this is a good moment for animal rights. Um, I think it's also a very a, a critical moment for the following reason. Um, the work of uh, the, the work of activism has more or less been done. What I, I don't mm-hmm. mean the activism in the street, but I mean the theoretical work of activism. Okay. That is, the, the hardcore theory uh, has been laid out by people like Peter Singer and Tom Regan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the holes, the gaps that they left in their theories, uh, those have been filled in by other experts and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're sort of now, in a, just entering now, I believe, as my sense is, a kind of second stage yeah. in, the, in the talk about animal rights. And this is the... the uh, point where we don't talk so much about animals as objects or things yeah. and kind of slap a theory onto them. Yeah. Instead, what we're trying to do is think, okay, well, animals are part of our experience. And in thinking about them, how can we think about ourselves and vice mm-hmm. versa? So I think that the, the, there's a moment in animal rights that's happening right now, uh, which is very interesting. And I say it's kind of a, a second stage or a movement past this first hardcore theoretical Assault upon the idea that animals do not have any ethical existence. Right. Um, and, and that assault, I think, has been successful on the theoretical level. Mm-hmm. Um, the case has been made that people agree or disagree. Yeah. But the case has been made the way we're going to be able to make it. Yeah, um, yeah. And so that's why we can begin now, I think, to move on and think in more human terms about the way we live together with animals. Well, one thing that it makes me think of is... God, I, I don't know the year on this. I really should. But I think it was up. It wasn't until like the 70s or the late 60s where scientists realized that fish actually had a nervous system. Well, uh, you know, I think to a certain point that they weren't even looking. That's it, a good point. It wasn't until sort of on the on the philosophical side. It was 1975, I believe. Don't quote me. Um, <laughs> was Peter Singer's Animal Liberation. Then 1983 was Tom Regan's um, God, case, so case recent, friend. Work. And you know? before then, it, there was almost nothing. Um, wow. The, the way we thought about animals institutionally, philosophically, et cetera, before then was um, not in ethical terms for themselves, mm-hmm. but to the degree that we, that we would try not to mistreat animals. Yeah. Uh, the reasoning was, I will not mistreat my dog because, and only because, um, that might lead me to mistreat other human beings. Oh, wow. Right? It wasn't, uh, there's this idea of, of mediated ethics, right? We didn't treat the, we didn't avoid cruelty because we wanted to avoid cruelty to the animal. Right. But just because we didn't want to insert into ourselves this idea we can be cruel. Okay. Um, and that comes from Aquinas in the, the Catholic tradition going back to the, you know, the oh, wow. 400 uh, uh, AD and so yeah. on, right? Um, and so that notion has dominated 
animal rights until really very recently. The entire, at least academically, the entire school of thought has developed very rapidly mm-hmm. in the last just decades. So well, things change. Philosophy is usually not like that. In philosophy, usually it's eons for the smallest change. But in this case, it's been a pretty quick development. That's really cool. And that's really nice to hear. And it's, you know, I feel like until recently, animals were just kind of like here for us, basically. You know, it's like a form of entertainment or a form of food or, you know, just kind of like their purpose on this planet was to serve man. Mm. And unfortunately, that's changing a little bit. And I think people are starting to understand that in many cases, it's the opposite of that. You know, (laughs) (laughs) for those of us who have dogs, it does feel that way. sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I got two cats. I'm like, you know, the slave in my house with these two cats. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we were talking about we were talking about that just before we started, actually, a little bit. Yeah. Um, about this. Uh, the, uh, we were just mentioning your show with the Spaniard and mm-hmm. the, the hunting dogs. And I was commenting that uh, my, my wife, who's Spanish, uh, grew up in a, in a hotel in Spain. And it, Spain has also modernized very rapidly. Yeah. When she was growing up. Um, her dad would take the dogs out hunting for days at a time mm-hmm. and come back with racks of uh, rabbits and so on, yeah. which was the food for the hotel. I mean, oh, so wow. Imagine going up at that. Your dad literally goes out with a shotgun and the dogs out into the woods and I'm comes right. back right at some point in the near future, hopefully. right? And then that's the, the food that you cook for the, for the next week or so in the hotel. Um, so it, and. She was born in a in a place that didn't even have electricity. Mm-hmm. Spain was very, really a very kind of backward place for yeah. a long time because of this devastation of the Civil War yep. and then the uh, dictatorship of yep. Franco. The country kind of got stuck. Yeah. Um, so in any case, that's kind of going to our cultural history. But, but her relationship with dogs was, as you're saying, just purely useful. Now, the yeah. dogs were well treated, but they were hunting dogs. Yeah. They were working dogs. Yeah. Um, and, and she says that their names, just so that her dad could rally them, their names were all monosyllables. Do, Ray, me. <laughs> so you know, he'd go get something, he'd check out, well, there's Do, there's Ray, where's me? And he'd that's scream funny. for me, and then me would come in the, in the forest, that kind of thing. Um, so that's just a really different relationship yeah. with dogs and, and animals generally. Um, that I think that, for instance, my children have, mm-hmm. who grew up with the dog and have a an emotional, their first connection is an emotional connection. Absolutely. Absolutely. As opposed to a utilitarian connection. Totally. And so that's a whole different kind of um, way of relating, I think, to, to animals. And it's funny, I mean, when I when you sent me this book and I saw that it was in Spain, in Pamplona, like where it's based, I was like, oh my God, because I lived near there. I never made it to Pamplona because I used to get terribly car sick, so like anywhere out of Elizondo was just not happening. But I was there for Sanfermin, and, you know, we, the book discusses bullfighting, and so I never made it to a bullfight, and honestly, I was so sensitive that, thank God, I didn't, because I probably would still be traumatized mm, to this day. Yeah, I'm yeah. not that person, you know? But yeah, when I was in Spain, I mean, we're talking, Franco was still around. It was towards the end of his thing. I don't want to admit how old I am, so I'm going to kind of stretch this, you know. But um, it was a very, very different place. And the way that I spent a lot of time on a farm because I was there to learn Spanish, and I didn't. I was very shy. And so I spent all this time on the farm because you don't have to talk to animals in Spanish. So it's like my solution to this. And, you know, there was, it was a cattle farm, and so they were producing milk, and, you know, the babies were sold off for veal, and there were a couple pigs and a donkey and some other stuff. Um 
But these were all like servants, basically, mm. you know, and like some of the cows had names because I named them and the farmer felt really guilty. So he kept the names. But it really was a different. It really was almost like master slave. Yeah, yeah. You know, where there was no equality and there was a barn cat, but she wasn't a pet. She was there to get rid of the mice. Like they all had certain duties and certain purposes and jobs. And the whole bullfighting aspect was so interesting to me on so many different levels. That's why I love why it's in this book. Um, because of tradition. Same as the hunting dogs. It's the same thing. It's that deep, deep, deep rooted tradition and what is right, you know, quote unquote, and what isn't right and what's ethical and what's not ethical. And I would love to talk about the bulls a little bit because I didn't know anything about them. So if you could share what you know about them, that'd be great. Right. The, the running of the bulls and, yeah. then the, and then the bull fight. Well, this is, um, I use this as, as a backdrop uh, because it it captures, it seems to me, fairly well uh, a human aspect of the two fundamental ways that we talk about animal mm-hmm. rights. Um, one is this idea of, of pleasure and pain. Uh, and the, the ethics here is uh, traces back, as I mentioned earlier, to this idea of utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea is quite simple. It's that the ethically right action is just the one that maximizes pleasure and minimizes pain. For right. that person, right? For that. Okay. Well, right. Well, for, for, the, for that person. But then as, as a generalized theory, you would say, well, then we're going to do what's best for, for everybody. Right. right? Okay. Um, so that's, curiously, you've put your finger right on one of the problems with the theory. Mm. Right. One of the, well, what some people think is a problem. Um, because let's imagine, for example, that, um, this is just purely theoretical, but let's imagine that you're very wealthy mm-hmm. and my, me and my philosophy friends are not at all wealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, under this theory, uh, if we have the opportunity, it would make sense for us to steal a yeah, good totally. portion of your money. Totally. Why is it? Because you would be sad that you lost some of your money, but that, sat- that sadness would be more than compensated right. by the happiness we poverty-stricken <laughs> philosophers would feel as we charge off to get our beers and that kind of thing, right? Um, so so there, are, there are problems with the theory, um, but, but, but there are ways to manage it and so on. Um, in any case, uh, one way of thinking about ethics for humans is this idea that we should just always do what maximizes pleasure and minimizes pain. Mm-hmm. And then the move that, uh, that Peter Singer made mm-hmm. um, is, is he said, well, okay, uh, I'll buy this idea that we should maximize pleasure and minimize pain, but shouldn't that go, not just for humans, but for anything and everything oh, wow. that feels pleasure and pain? Uh, and so then that's the move that he made into animal rights. Uh, and then uh, from there, then the discussion comes, well, uh, do animals suffer pain right. yeah. or, or do they have pleasures? Um, and, and there are a lot of interesting questions that you, that you can ask about the, the running of the bulls and the, the bull fight. Um, what's pretty clear are two things mm. about the, the bulls and the bull fight. First, as you know, of course, uh, these bulls are, are um, reared on terrific, wonderful estates. They're, these are the pride of the Spanish farmers, the, these bulls that will be used in the bullfight. See, so they I receive had the no best. idea about They receive that. royal treatment. There are few animals anywhere that receive the kind of treatment that Spanish fighting bulls wow. receive on the way to their experience in Pamplona wow. or, or well, they're where beautiful. You have it. Yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah, they're they're perfectly totally. muscled. And they're, they're shiny. Yeah, and like... and their health is, um, is uh, impeccable, etc. So, their lives are enviable mm. by by any measure. Yeah. Until until yeah. that one 
very bad experience when they go to Pamplona. And the way it works is they're trucked in on the morning of the bullfight. Mm. They run through the streets. Mm-hmm. I, th- I suspect that most of your listeners know kind of what yeah, the totally. running of the bulls are. You know, it's kind of seen little images, things like that. So they have a bad morning. Just chaos, yeah. fear, yeah. disorientation, everything that's bad, yeah. followed by a worse afternoon. Yes, right? <laughs> and, and one of the things about the bullfight is, as I sort of pointed out in the book, bulls are, even though they can be violent and aggressive creatures, they're not naturally that way. Yeah. Um, and so they do need to be sparked into their mm-hmm. aggressiveness. And there's a very elaborate ritual that's used in the bullfight of inflicting pain through swords and 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 spears stage by stage uh, to rile them up. That's the way it works. And then finally, of course, death comes and the death is painful. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you are thinking about ethics in terms of pleasure and pain for the bulls, uh, something really interesting comes up about for these bulls. Um, if, If you have just a case of animal cruelty in terms of pleasure and pain, you say, that's ethically reproachable. That's it. Right. But the bulls is interesting because they have this terrific life. Totally. For so many, uh, it's a number of years. I believe they they fight at three. So, okay. So let's say it's three years of wonderful life. Yeah. And then one very, very bad day. Yeah. Right. Um, and so then you ask yourself, well, in terms of pleasure and pain, uh, what is the balance there? Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's especially forceful for the bulls for this reason, because if we don't have the bullfight, mm-hmm. if we say we're going to ban the bullfight and not have it, yeah. then those bulls will simply not be reared, right? Those farms will turn their fields to other purposes, right. and the Spanish fighting bulls will disappear largely. And is this um, like a certain breed that they use that would right, wind up being right. extinct there are three, there are three or, I'm not sure if the breed would be extinct, but there are three or four right. kind of breeds they use. And then it's also just worth noting quickly that the Spanish bullfight happens in Spain, but also in Mexico yep. uh, and Peru, Argentina, and uh, through South America. There are little differences in each place, so mm-hmm. it's hard to speak about the bullfight yeah, because exactly. they're different. Uh, That's fair enough. But but coming back to the main point, so we have this question, which is kind of an interesting question, at least for a philosopher it is. Yeah. Um, so if, if, if you as a person, this is the kind of thing I like to use the book to bring out, um, if you as a person had the following choice, um, you could not exist at all, or you could have a great life for like three years, and then, or 30 years or whatever, yeah. and then have a... Horrifying, the worst. <laughs> Thrown into some stupid thing, people hammering at you, swords everywhere. Right? I mean, it, it, would you go for that or not? That's a really good question. Um, I, I have to say, instinctively, my th- I was very surprised because I would go for it without thinking twice. Really? Say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be great for th- three years or what, what have you, exactly. and then, well, I'll deal with this bad moment. But some people react very negatively to that. Mm. Um, and I think it has to do maybe with, to some extent with whether you privilege pleasure or pain, right? I mean, some people say, look, totally. I want pleasure, and if I have to deal with some pain, then I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or is it, I just want to avoid pain, and it's not worth the pain even if I get some pleasure on the side. So or you, know, you get the fatalist that's like, life sucks, it's all pain, <laughs> right, and then we right, die, right, and then we go to heaven, and everything's right. good, you know? Well, the, the good thing, the utilitarianism is perfect for these people because, by definition, it leads to you know, a bad ending for yeah. them. They should, they should bring that in upon themselves. It's a, 
That's well, wild. That, that's a dark turn. Anyway, let's yeah, go back. Yeah, but you know, it's what it is, sadly. <laughs> we actually need to take a break, which I don't want to do, but I have to, because if not, my sponsors will kill me. We will be back in a minute and a half to discuss more with James Rousseau about his book, Dignity, Pleasures, Vulgarity, Philosophy and Animal Rights. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. We are back. I am talking to author and philosopher James J. Rousseau, all about his book, Dignity, Pleasures, Vulgarity, Philosophy, and Animal Rights. So you wrote about the premise that all dignified animals have ethical rights, but what makes some animals dignified and others not? Well, that's an excellent question. I know. I'm really sorry. It's a deep one. This is this, well. This is interestingly one of the reasons I wrote the book to begin with, because that's the kind of question we should also ask about human beings too. Right um, now, uh, historically, the idea of dignity—just to go back to the start, just for a moment—is yeah, that there are two fundamental ways that we think that uh, creatures deserve ethical rights. One is in terms of pleasure and pain. So, if a creature feels pleasure or suffers pain, then it's part of the ethical world and mm-hmm. it's part of the discussion. The other way is this this dignity dignity front. And we say that um, any creature that has dignity intrinsically merits ethical protection. Mm. So then the question is, okay, um, what is this dignity? Yeah. Thing, right? I mean, where, where does this come from? What, what does it feel like? Et cetera. The fundamental answer historically has had something to do with, with rationality. Okay. Um, that the ability to think about your experience, to plan for the future, to comprehend your past, to understand time as, oh, a, wow. as an era was purposeful, um, and, and to make something of it, uh, to make plans for the future, th- anything that can do that mm-hmm. is dignified. Okay. Now, now, so that works. That's terrific for human beings, but but there are some problems there. Yeah. What about uh, a baby? Is a baby dignified? Mm. Uh, it sounds like under this definition, and we're looking, at, we're live in a, and Roberta's here just for a bridge. I'm looking at some babies out in front of us watching us. Well, I'm looking at a baby right now. Does this baby have, have dignity? Does this baby think coherently about uh, his future and past? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, so there are these difficulties within the definition of dignity is, is rationality. Um, so the other way that we've thought about dignity traditionally is we've said there's something about being human mm-hmm. um, that means or that demands uh, that we should be treated o- only or at least 
whenever possible as ends and not means. What does that mean? Uh, that signifies uh, that human beings should not be used as things that are replaceable. So, for example, oh, wow. so, okay. so for example, if my, I'm holding my phone right now, if if my phone were to break, mm-hmm. I would just get a new phone, yeah. and I wouldn't feel like anything was lost yeah. as long as it's the same model and make and so on, right? So, so phones are replaceable, but there's something about being human that makes us not not replaceable, yeah. and, and that quality is dignity itself. Now, okay. th- now then, there's a next question. Well. Where does this quality come from? I mean, why is it that we have human beings have this quality of being irreplaceable? Mm -hmm. Or why is it stated slightly differently? If you made a perfect clone of me and charged a new brain with all my memories, why is it that that thing would not be me and not be worth as much as I am? Um, And the reason some people will say, well, is because there's something uh, in the law of nature mm-hmm. uh, that, that makes human beings singular and we can't be replicated. Others would say that there's something genetic. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's either nature or it's something in my humanity. Someone takes a religious uh, approach, they yeah. might say that it's, it's a soul or totally. something like that. Uh, so there are all kinds of explanations. Uh, but no matter which explanation you choose, where you're headed is toward the idea that there's something unique in a specific living human being, in you and I, mm. uh, that makes us valuable in, ourse- in, in and of ourselves, irreplaceable. Mm-hmm. It can't be replicated. And that's the reason why we deserve protection. That's the reason why someone out there should not just come in and steal my money and so right. on, because, I, because I'm singular. I have value in myself. What Tom Regan said um, in his book is he said, well, let's define dignity in the following way. Mm-hmm. Dignity is the ability not so much to think about your experience and be rational, but let's say that dignity is instead just the ability to understand your experience in time, to understand the past, present, and the future. And as soon as he says that, then that opens the way for some animals to have ethical rights. Mm -hmm. Because it seems like, at least many higher mammals, Mm -hmm. it seems quite clear uh, that they can understand, let's say that our a mammal that's trapped in a zoo. It seems quite clear that this mammal goes to sleep at night mm-hmm. uh, knowing that he or she has been in the zoo and yeah. expecting yeah. that he or she will be in this cage again tomorrow. Totally. Um, and so what, what he and his those who work along his side say is that uh, there's not just biology but also biography. And any okay. creature that has biography that understands itself as moving in time, that creature has dignity. Um, so, okay. so, uh, so there are these two different ways of thinking about it. The traditional human way has been uh, biography plus rationality. Mm-hmm. What the animal rights proponents want to say is, you know what? Rationality is not so important. Mm. It's more the sense that you're moving in time. Um, and if you have that, then you are intrinsically valuable and deserve ethical protection. Okay. That is, you should be allowed to autonomy, live freely, and so on. So... That's a long answer, but that's sort of what how we define what dignity is, yeah, and how we've moved those who are our proponents of this theory, how they've moved from the idea that dignity is human centered to perhaps centered upon uh, all those animals that have a sense of themselves in time mm-hmm. or what's technically called the subject of a life okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. And so then that kind of leaks into speciesism. Or species, how am I saying this? Speciesism? Speciesism. Right. Speciesism, yes, right. okay. Right, right, because the idea is, I mean, if, if we buy that idea, mm-hmm. that a- anything that understands 
any living creature understands of past, present, and future has dignity, um, then uh, there's no reason to exclude uh, a, a dolphin or a higher mammal or so on just because they happen to be non-human, yeah. right? If all that matters is that you have a sense of yourself in time, then there's no reason to say four arms or two legs or what have you. Right, right, right. Right. And then where this intersects with animal rights is, is kind of interesting because, or at least it seems so to me, because the, the height of, of rational dignity mm-hmm. for human beings is frequently associated with our cultural traditions, yeah. which ex- is exactly the bullfight. Right? Yeah, totally, the bullfight totally. is, a, is a triumph of human reason. Yep. And, and also it's a harvesting and a... Uh, a, a, a packaging of human passions, mm-hmm. right? It depicts the human experience. The bullfight depicts the human experience as the, as the matador salutes his favorite in the stands yeah. um, and faces death and survives it and so on. So it, it's a highly rational, passionate, very human experience. Mm-hmm. And so there's something in the bullfight which is pure dignity. Mm. And so if you look at that, uh, you can see it two ways, and this is what makes the bullfight very interesting. Yeah. People who are in favor of the bullfight say, look, that no animal could create this kind of majesty of, yeah. um, uh, this kind of majesty of, of almost kind of rational creation of the passions. Uh, and therefore, animals don't deserve rights. Mm-hmm. Whereas by contrast, others look at that same bullfight yeah. and they see a bull. Uh, who does understand itself, or if not a bull, maybe there'd be a debate about that, but yeah. some higher animals, that understand themselves yeah. right, as in this experience. Yeah. And they say, well, the same bullfight you're using to justify the idea that we don't have animal rights proves the opposite, that we do, animals totally. should have rights. Totally. Um, and, and so it's, it, it, one thing about being kind of a philosopher and approaching these issues is, I think anyone who does philosophy, is that we like moments like that, mm-hmm. uh, which capture simultaneously both sides of a debate yeah, yeah, and kind yeah. of let people think think it through for themselves yeah. um, um, and, and come to the conclusion. Instead of trying to push people toward a conclusion, let people think it through and, and come to their own way of thinking about things. It's a really, you know, it's a really tough call because it's like with the bullfights, I mean, like I said, I never spent any time around them. I was like, not happening. But like to find out that these bulls are treated like royalty before their life and aren't right. just like, you know, some like random bull. Mm-hmm. Like that already really changed my mind on it because it was like, oh my God, they're being respected and really treated. But the fact, you know, if they're like when they're in the bullfight, I've seen them run through the streets because they used to do that in my town with yeah. calves and scare the crap out of all the kids, which was super fun. Uh, they uh, didn't like that at all. But it was like you could see the fear in the animal. You know what I mean? And you could see like cases where they would either cower out of sheer fear or right. they would just react and fight back. So, like, they were, you know, in my book, anyway, out of the mind of a 10-year-old, it looked, I believe that they were experiencing pleasure and pain by their reactions. Mm-hmm. You know, so, like, I think that if, if there's some, like, lower species, like, let's go for, like, a jellyfish, okay? We're going hardcore here. I want an extreme. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, you can poke it and things like this, and, like, you'll probably get stung, but it's not going to attack you, for example. <laughs> well, the pain will be yours, but Exactly. Not it's your own damn fault. <laughs> you know, but then you're looking at an animal that's this massive, massive beast, that is realizing that something is going on and, oh, my God, I need to defend myself. Mm. You know, so that kind of puts, besides it puts a human, you know, a human angle on it because I don't have a better word for it. Right. Um, but to also show that, you know, it's not just some massive sack of cells that's letting you do whatever you want to it kind of right. thing. Right. You know, like it will respond. Right. 
and, and, and then so, and there again, it's curious because you can say, look, in, in that moment, you see both sides of the, uh, of the debate because you see that the, the human dignity, which is the creation of this theater, but also you see the dignity that perhaps exists in the animal like, yeah. and the fact that it responds and the fact that the animal takes, in a certain sense, takes responsibility for yeah. his or her condition. And then going back to the, the question of ethics, um, one thing that we, we like to think of in terms of, of ethical rights um, you know, the idea that, that you deserve some protections yeah. in, uh, from things is we like to think that that also implies some sense of responsibility, um, mm. that, that, you, that you defend yourself. Yeah. Right? I mean, it doesn't have to be responsibility in the sense that you, you know, we, we don't expect a bull to help an old grandmother across the street. <laughs> right? but, 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 but there is a sense, that, 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 as you put it exactly, that you see it in the eyes. Yeah, they defend do. themselves. They take responsibility. This is the situation in which I find myself thrown, and this is mm. the situation in which I will respond to. And perhaps that, too, is enough to say that there, there's dignity there. Um, so all of these things, all of these questions are, are sort of open um, and, and curious, and, and they're going forward, as I say, from this kind of second stage of animal rights, uh, the one that after we've made the arguments in favor of animal rights, where we can begin to step back and reflect, well, how do these, how do these rights uh, exist in terms of human experience, and how can we see them from both sides, and how can we discuss them in ways that are fruitful and interesting? So uh, as a philosopher, when you were doing research on this book, was it difficult to keep, like, it not to be non-judgmental and just kind of look at the evidence that you had in front of you, or were you taking sides? Uh, you know, I one of the things, I suppose there are people are different this way. Uh, we hear a lot about in the universities today about professors in one school or another taking such. But it, my experience is it's not that way. Mm. Um, the, the most academics, and I like to count myself amongst this, when, when I teach a, a philosopher like Plato or uh-huh. Patrick, uh, I try to almost be like an actor and throw myself into it oh, cool. as forcefully as I can and say, I fully believe in this theory. Yeah. And like you, I don't want to give away my age, but I've been doing this for a good number of years now, right? And so it's become very natural for me Uh when I see an argument to throw myself in it and just adopt it fully with my my core. And then, of course, I step back later on. I say, well, this is what I think personally. Yeah. Um, But what this book is about is, is not that because as I say I think that that stage we've already got that yeah and if you're looking for a philosopher who will give you the the gun the, the firepower yeah, to yeah, protect yeah. animals you should go for Peter, Pete, Peter Singer mm-hmm. and Tom Regan mm-hmm. they've got great books and or books about them cool and they will give you what you need cool to debate in favor of animal rights whereas by contrast if you want to think a little more deeply about the the issue in general and think about ourselves in relationship with humans that's that's kind of what i'm what i'm about and i love that because you know it's i mean you know obviously i've got a show about animals it's about animal education animal welfare at the end of the day i would like animals to have rights and you know not get wiped out and become extinct and screw up our planet because of it but Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to do what you do because I would be like, no, it's, yeah. you know, it's Mickey Mouse and he's got a family and, you know, it would, I just wouldn't be able to take that scientific view of it. And I really, really appreciate this book and I appreciate you coming in and talking to me. I hate the fact that our time has flown by in five seconds. I feel like you just sat down. We haven't talked about vulgarity yet. I we'll know. Have to, we'll I'm like really <laughs> bummed out. We're going to have to do another episode on you, which I would love to do actually to continue this conversation if you had any interest at all. Um, but for where can people find this book? Oh, it's out on, it's out. just as a quick note, this is a, a, a cup of coffee book. This barely deserves the title of a book. It's oh, give a me a break, man. Long... It took me a long time to read it. It's a good book. <laughs> 
<laughs> it might be small, but it's, it's mighty, mighty, my friend. My God. But this is, a, I think we envisioned it as a Kindle mainly, but of course it's paperback available and uh, there's an audible version. I think it's out. If it's not out yet, it will be out soon. Cool. You know, it's out in all the various forms and all the Cool. And if anyone has any questions, would you be willing to let them reach you? If you're not, For, it's cool. R- no, I mean, I'm, <laughs> absolutely. Um, anyone can reach me very easily. Uh, at my webpage is jamesbrusseau.net altogether. So J-A-M-E-S-B-R-U-S-S-E-A-U.net. Perfect. There's a contact. I'm happy to uh, get emails and so on. Perfect. Sure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this interview because it was really nice to have this conversation. And like I said, I mean, the book's not long, but wow, it's dense. And it really, it really, really opened up my eyes and really made me think about all these different aspects, which is something I don't normally do. So I want to say thank you so much for that. Well, thank you. I'm glad. It was great. It was really great. And if anybody, you know, seriously, like this is a book that really is, it'll really make you think. So if you want to like get your brain rolling a little bit, pick this thing up because it was fascinating. And like we've said, it's not a thousand page book. So you can get through (laughs) it pretty good. Um, Thank you guys for listening. Unfortunately, we're out of time, which is a bummer. But I will be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Stay dry if you're in this snowstorm path. Just be careful. Don't do anything stupid don't go out and i will talk to you next week take care thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.